Welcome to the Burning Zone. There are people today whose lives are miserable because they don't understand forgiveness. Terrible things have happened to them. Awful things have been done to them. To make things even worse, in the middle of sorrow, hurt, and anger that seem to go on forever, they've been taught wrong ideas about forgiveness and how it works. Let's deal with all of that right now. I know that it will uh, come as a shock, but when I was growing up, I was not an easy child to raise. At a young age, I think something happened inside of me, and it wasn't necessarily good. I can't fully explain it, but somewhere from about the age of five or six, I think, I stopped wanting to please my parents. That's kind of odd for a child that young. Probably that's true of almost everybody who comes to Hollywood. But I realize now that probably there were two reasons for this little transition that took place inside of me. First, I was a naturally lazy kid who didn't want to obey, and that's really the number one issue. The second, I was I think I was angry at them. I was angry at my parents, in particular my mother, who truly did love me and gave me so much throughout my life, was herself in many ways a hurt and an angry woman. And while I gave her plenty of reasons to be angry, uh, some of the anger directed toward me had nothing to do with me at all. When I was a little boy, I had a small red rocking chair that I loved, and on the arms of that chair were little holes. It looked like someone had, had taken a nail and jabbed holes into it through the rubber-like material. I remember asking my mother several times how the holes got there, and she would say that a bad little boy did that. And I always thought that she was talking about me, but I couldn't ever remember doing it. Uh, finally, one day when I was, I think, five or six, I asked her, did I do this? And she said, no, no, it, was, it wasn't you. It was a bad little boy who came to visit. Well, automatically, for some reason, when she talked about a bad kid, I assumed she meant me. Um, as I grew older, laziness and anger toward my parents, which included a lack of desire for their approval, worked itself out in ways that were not good. I did poorly in school, as I've said in the past. I've graduated in the bottom three percentile of my high school class. You have to work to do that. Top three, bottom three. That takes effort. You know, I disobeyed and I lied whenever it was necessary to protect myself. Most important of all, when I was caught in something, I never apologized and I never said I was sorry. Though I might feel true guilt for what I had done, my anger and desire to protect myself easily overwhelmed any true guilt, giving me the dark energy to lie and to keep on lying. In those rare instances when I was falsely accused of something that I hadn't done, oh, the self-righteousness that would fill me, the self-pity that would overwhelm me, would rise up and I would just feel so sorry. As I licked my tiny wounds, my whole ugly lifestyle seemed to be justified all over again. So I was caught in a terrible vortex. False guilt that had been injected into me, perhaps in part by the pain and anger of my mother, helped to contaminate the work that true guilt should have been doing within me. Unwilling to distinguish between the two, in my anger I rejected both false and true guilt. When we refuse the God-given work that true guilt wants to do in our lives, we make things much, much worse both for ourselves and for others. There's a fantasy today that all guilt is bad, 
And that is one of the greatest lies of Satan. Here's how his strategy works. If through the actions of other people, he can plant within us enough false guilt, guilt that we know shouldn't be there at all, but is there and plagues us to death, then we will be filled with so much anger and self-pity that we will reject the work of true guilt that God gives us to guide us to repentance when we do things that are wrong. We're trapped in a vortex doing self-destructive things that are sinful and that create true guilt, which we reject as we try to strike out at the people who have hurt us in the past, even if those people have been dead for decades. True guilt should bring sorrow for sin and the desire to repent. False guilt brings rage and self-pity. You see why Satan is so desperate to destroy true guilt with false guilt. This awful pattern can spin itself out through our entire lives, keeping us from true repentance and true healing. I believe Hollywood is is full of people who are caught in this vortex. Strangely, it can drive us to what appears to be success as we work desperately to prove that all the negative opinions of other people in our past were wrong. But that kind of anger-powered success only leads to emptiness, more self-loathing, more anger, more destruction. Destruction that we pass on many times to generations that come after us. Now, psychology says this. We will help you learn to cope with all of this so that you won't be a slave to the voices of guilt, this false guilt from the past that are inside your head. When you stop listening to those voices, you will become self-actualized, which means that you will be able to make decisions that are right for you because you are freed from old patterns. You will be able to enjoy life, finding true success and fulfillment in significant relationships. That's a promise. But how often and to what depth is it ever achieved? What does Jesus say? In Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, he gives his plan. He says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now this is vastly different than the psychological plan. What did Jesus mean? First, he recognizes our true condition. In our lives, we are beasts of burden, laboring under loads so heavy that we can barely move. We're struggling, we're angry, and we're utterly exhausted. These are not loads that we were meant to carry, but we can't get rid of them on our own. The analogy that Jesus uses is that of a yoke. In our day, we've lost any real knowledge about yokes. Probably you know that a yoke is a wooden frame that was placed over the neck of an ox. Attached to it would be a plow or some other implement that the animal would pull. As you know, before his ministry in public, Jesus spent years as a carpenter in Nazareth. In his business, he would have constructed many yokes. An ox would be brought to him, and measurements would be taken. Each yoke was unique to each ox. The yoke would be carved 
and then the ox would be brought back in for a fitting. Any place where the yoke didn't fit, that was a place that could chafe the ox, causing painful and dangerous wounds. So to say that a yoke is easy is to say that it fits perfectly. It won't chafe and it won't cause any wounds. That is the kind of yoke that Jesus says He will put upon His disciples. More than that, the burden attached to the yoke will be light. Now why is this so? Because He is gentle and lowly in heart. He isn't a proud taskmaster. He doesn't put loads on people that they cannot bear. And the loads that come from Him, He promises to bear with us. Most yokes were made for two oxen. They work side by side. I'm sure you've seen pictures of that. Jesus says that He will pull with us on the other side. Now, I'm not a weightlifter. I know that surprises you given my buffness. But you're laughing. You know, this is, you know. But if I, if I had an Olympic champion weightlifter helping me lift a barbell, I'd feel pretty strong. Not surprisingly, because Jesus is the greatest weightlifter in the universe. While we wear his yoke and pull his burden, instead of being exhausted by the unbearable load, we find rest for our souls as we walk side by side with him through the work that he has for us to do. His work calls for real effort. He doesn't do it all for us, but as we do it, and we do it with him, it brings joy. Now, many of us are trying to wear yokes that have been placed on ourselves, that we've done, either we put it on ourselves, or that have been placed on us by others. Now, we've worn them a long time, but they don't fit and they've caused terrible wounds in our lives. They need to be removed or we're going to be spiritually crippled. We're struggling beneath those loads. But the strange thing is that often we're so used to those yokes and the burdens attached to them that even though they are killing us, and we are exhausted, we are too proud to give them up to Jesus. We try to tear them off ourselves. And for a little while it may seem as though we're free of them. But soon we realize that the yoke is still there, only now it's even more horrible. It's at this point that many of us become utterly hopeless. We start taking all sorts of antidepressants. We start asking for the help that psychology and psychopharmacy can give to us for a brief period. Jesus died to remove those terrible yokes that we were never meant to carry. He died to take away the burden of sin that we're dragging behind us. Getting all of that removed requires spiritual surgery because the yokes have grown deep into the flesh of our souls. We have to want Him to remove them. Now, last month we talked about the price He paid to set us free. He took all our burden of sin on Himself and became our substitute dying the death that we should have died. Now, all that's necessary for us to have our hellish yokes removed and the burdens removed is to ask His forgiveness and accept the price He paid for you and me. When these unbearable yokes have been removed, the yoke that Jesus places upon us fits perfectly. But why is there a need for another yoke at all? Because there's work to be done in this sad world. There is work for which I have been uniquely created, work that I am intended to accomplish. There are other people who need to be told where they can be set free from the yokes that are killing them. And also I am called to carry the burden of my suffering neighbor. 
I'm called to take the message of Jesus' love into the world. His yoke gives me the ability to do the work that He intended for me to do when He created me. Jesus says that as I wear His yoke and pull His burden, something strange will happen. Rather than be exhausted, I will find rest for my soul. How is the old yoke removed that's killing us? How is the surgery performed? In our journey through the power statements of Jesus found in Matthew 5, we stop for a while at verse 7. Blessed, that means if you remember, if you've been with us, you know that word blessed in Greek is makarios. Blessed, filled with God-like joy that the world cannot take away, no matter what happens, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As we have said before, the engine that drives mercy is forgiveness, both receiving it and giving it to others. How is the enslaving yoke of anger and hurt and bitterness and self-pity removed from my soul? By receiving the forgiveness of God for my sins and asking others to forgive me and giving forgiveness to others where it is needed. The heaviest and most brutal yoke of all is hate and the desire for revenge. And I will tell you that Hollywood is filled with that kind of motivation. As I've said in the past many years ago, I worked with a great actor who had won numerous awards. This man had an incredible range of ability. But as I wrote for him, I was saddened to discover that the only part of his range that he was interested in sharing was anger. Oh, how he loved to show that. The man was laboring under a terrible yoke that was limiting everything he did, and he didn't even realize it. I'm sure he thought that it was his strength. The process of getting the old yoke removed begins with repenting of our sins and asking for God's forgiveness in Jesus. This means that I have to humble myself and admit my guilt. Now, Taking his yoke means that I surrender my life completely to his will. I become his disciple, following wherever he leads, learning from him and being obedient to him. I become yoked together with the king of the universe and learn to walk at his pace through my world. As I carry his yoke, my life should become a life where the love and mercy of God shine forth in all my relationships. In a world of damage and hurt, where bad things are going to be done to me, instead of adding to the damage and passing it on to others, God wants to empower me to forgive in ways and to depths that would not be possible if I were not yoked and walking with Him. Does this describe the lives of Christians today? Is the church a place where God's mercy and forgiveness are active and powerful? When I was a child, my family would spend every summer in a little town in northern Oklahoma called Tonkawa. It was where my mother had grown up. Two of her sisters and their husbands lived there. In the 1940s, the whole family had been members of a small Presbyterian church. And for a short time, my father was even even served as interim pastor of that church. The two brothers-in-law were leaders in the church. One was a farmer and the other one was a businessman. In the 1940s, a split took place in that congregation over important theological issues. The brother-in-law, who was the farmer, stayed in the church, while the businessman brother-in-law left the church, taking a number of people with him to form a new congregation several blocks away. A deep rift entered that family, and it was never healed in this world. 
Whenever we visited Tonkawa, and we did it every summer for several months, the two families would never join together for anything. There were no family gatherings of any kind. We would visit with one and then the other, and they lived only two miles apart. Both families were very kind to me. In many ways, the uncle who was the farmer was my favorite. He took me on tractor rides, and I could climb around his barn. Best of all, on the 4th of July, we had our own festival. On his huge driveway, he would bring in real fireworks and buy all kinds of stuff for us. This wasn't the safe, insane garbage. I'm talking about Roman candles and cherry bombs and M80s. It was wonderful. I loved the man. The other uncle, the businessman, he was also very kind to our family when we needed financial help because my father was a poor Bible teacher. He was always there. But in Tonkawa, no matter how nice the people were, under the surface there was the rift. And that rift was filled with hate. When I was a young adult, years later, Carol and I visited Tonkawa. By that time, the brother-in-law who was the businessman had been dead for years. I will never forget sitting in the living room with my uncle, the farmer, and hearing him say with smoldering rage that if Ernest, his brother-in-law, was in heaven, he didn't want to go there. I was young. I was so shocked that I didn't adequately respond that night. I wish I had. I hope he repented of his hate. He died several years after that. And truly, and I mean it when I say this, he was such a nice man. Nice or not, lack of forgiveness was killing his soul. I think there are a lot of people like that, both in the church and in the world. Certainly there are many thousands in Hollywood. As we said, Satan, the prince of darkness, wants to pervert and destroy the very meaning of forgiveness. He wants to twist it so out of shape that what we think is forgiveness becomes a destructive influence in our lives. He wants to make forgiveness seem complicated, difficult, weak, and unnecessary. He wants to destroy its power in us by stroking our pride. He knows that true forgiveness is a dagger in the heart of pride. Consequently, he will twist the very words of Jesus so that true forgiveness vanishes from our lives. Most people would agree that forgiveness is a virtue. But practically speaking, what does it really mean? What if the person who has wronged me doesn't want my forgiveness? Do I just try to invent warm, cuddly feelings and say everything's okay? A wrong understanding of forgiveness can bring disaster. You can bring back into your life the very person who has abused you and give that person the freedom to do it all over again. People stay in abusive marriages for years and years because they think that is the forgiving thing to do. Several years ago in the mountains where we lived, the mother of a friend of ours was murdered by her abusive husband. Finally, after many years of suffering, she had decided to divorce the man. So he murdered both her and her, and her attorney and then killed himself in the parking lot of a restaurant in our town. And of course, this man was known to be such a wonderful Christian, so friendly with everyone, always anxious to pray for anyone in need. Why did the situation get to the point of murder? I don't know, but I believe that perhaps an understanding of what Jesus really taught about forgiveness might have prevented it by actions that needed to have been taken years and years before. What did he teach? 
At first glance, what he said can seem contradictory. Let's turn to the first passage. It's Luke 17, verses 1 through 4. Luke chapter 17, 1 through 4. It says this, Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now in Matthew 18, Peter picks up on this and he asks him, How many times should I forgive my brother, Lord, seven times? That seemed like a very generous amount, right? Jesus replied, Seventy times seven, which means basically endlessly. So if your brother or sister sins against you, you are to forgive that person over and over and over again. Because that is the way God forgives you. How this forgiveness works seems really clear. Someone wrongs you. You go and rebuke them, which means that in Christian love, you confront the individual about what he or she did and how it hurt you. Now very often, right here is where everything falls apart. Most of us just don't want to confront anybody. We'd rather suffer in silence or complain to others about the situation, or maybe we want someone else to go confront the person for us. That I've seen happen. Jesus established a specific process for this kind of confrontation. It's found in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 22. I'll read them to you. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. I can tell you that in all the years that I've been in churches, and that goes back a long, long way, I have seen this full process found in Matthew chapter 18 used only a couple of times. What I've seen instead are terrible sins covered up and left to fester and rot. I have seen gossip erode unity. I've seen people take sides. I've seen people leave the church hurt and angry over issues that should have been resolved. And I've seen people remain in leadership who should have been removed. Now, the Matthew 18 process that Jesus gave us must be used under the guidance of the Holy Spirit with wisdom. The purpose for it is to bring healing repentance and restore broken relationships, not retaliate against someone who has wronged you. The purpose for it is to build each other up in the Lord and stand against the work of Satan. Often we initiate this process and we do so. We discover in the confrontation that there are areas where we need to repent as well. But if it doesn't work, if there is a clear offense and the offender refuses to repent, Jesus leaves no doubt about what must be done. Forgiveness cannot be given. We are to treat that individual as a heathen and a vile tax collector, the lowest of the low in Jesus' day. 
Does that mean that we shun them, kick them out, have nothing to do with them? Well, that's what some people believe. But is that what Jesus meant? Wait a minute. Who did the Lord spend so much time trying to reach in his ministry? Who did he eat with and befriend to such a degree that the religious leaders hated him for it? Heathens, tax collectors, sinners, rejects, the lowest of the low. Is he not saying that we should treat those who refuse to repent as we would non-believers? That means that they are people to be reached, if possible, with the love of God. That doesn't mean that we overlook what they've done. We live with the hurt and loss, showing God's mercy to them wherever possible. That is a burden that only Jesus can pull with us. This is not like forgiveness anywhere else in the world. In Luke 17, 1-4, it is very clear that forgiveness is conditional. If the person does not repent and ask to be forgiven, they are not to be forgiven. They are not to be released from their obligation to you. But for a careful Bible student, there seems to be a problem with this. Elsewhere, Jesus appears to contradict himself. If you turn to Mark 11, verses 25 to 26, Mark 11, 25 to 26 says this, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, what we just read, there is nothing at all about rebuking a person or the person repenting. You are to forgive that horrible offender so that your Father in heaven will forgive you, you horrible offender. It's as simple as that. So what is going on here? How do we put together these apparently contradictory teachings of Jesus? I have seen people focus on one or the other, to the exclusion of everything else, and that is dangerous. There are Christians who say, you know, I don't have to forgive unless the person asks to be forgiven. If they don't ever ask, I don't have to have to forgive. It's over, period, end of story. I'm free to hold a grudge forever. That's what Jesus said, don't forgive. Or someone else will say, I've forgiven them before God, so they don't need to do anything. I just have to welcome them back and love them. I want to tell you something. Both of these are recipes for disaster. It is only as we understand and integrate the full teaching of the Lord that we can see the great beauty and release that His kind of forgiveness can bring. In, 11, in Mark 11.24, Jesus is talking about having faith in prayer to move mountains. That's the context of that statement. Here's the situation. You're praying about what appears to be insurmountable challenges in your life. You need a miracle, my friend. Now, how often are we in that place? I mean, if I asked everybody in this room, how, have you, how many of you need a miracle tonight? I would imagine there are a whole lot of people who would say, I'm in desperate case. I need a miracle. But as you are praying, into your mind comes the memory of a person who has wronged you. There's deep emotion in this memory. The situation plagues you and seems to block your prayer. You need to focus on critical issues in your life, but you can't because of what, you, what is, was done to you. Who knows, maybe it was many years ago, or maybe it was done to someone you love. Maybe this has gone on for a long, long time. The hurt and anger are destroying your spiritual life, no matter how sweet you may look on Sunday morning with all your Christian friends. And maybe even your relationships with others have been destroyed. 
impossible to cover this thing up. It's a monster that won't go away. Instead of praying, this is what I love to do, stew. Well, you know, yes, Lord, I'm stewing to you now, and I'm calling this prayer. I'm going to stew about all the things that have been done to me. Yes, relive the events that caused all of it. Oh, it's horrible, and you can live them. If you're a creative person, if you've been given visualization abilities, and as a writer, I can tell you I have strong ones. I can visualize not only the situation, I can visualize doing terrible things to the person. You know, Hollywood is filled with creative people who have deeply submerged the anger and hurt of many, many years. It taints every person and every project that they touch. It is so deep within them that they actually think the hurt and anger are necessary for them to be creative. Oh, I've known many people like this. Little wonder that from these gifted people comes darkness and destruction. Jesus says the answer is forgiveness. First, the forgiveness of God for our sins. Then he commands us to forgive the very people who have hurt us most. How? As we stand before the Lord in prayer, we release those individuals into God's hands. And by doing so, we refuse to own that situation and those people in this way anymore. What does release mean? It means that you give up your right to vengeance. You give up your right to hatred and to anger. You give up your right to get even. You have given yourself those rights because you believe a real sin has been committed against you, and perhaps it has. As you release the individual, you are saying to God, you are the judge, This person and all that he or she has done to me is in your hands. I lay it there and I leave it there. Justice belongs to you. I release this individual from any punishment that I might want to give him. Now, though there is emotion involved in this, on the face of it, this is a judicial decision. It does not depend on how you feel. After you do it, You may not feel forgiving for a long time. But every time you feel unforgiving, every time the anger returns, you remind yourself of what you did in prayer. That judicial action becomes a benchmark in your life. You transact this forgiveness whether the person asks to be forgiven or not. It is unconditional. It is based on your faith in the loving justice of God You are accepting his sovereignty in this hurtful situation. Now, there are a lot of people who are quite willing to do this as long as they believe God is is going to do to that person, that horrible individual, what they would like to do if they could. They can relate to all the imprecatory prayers of David. God, go out there and kill them all for me, please. You know, I mean, you can find that all over the Psalms. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't let us live in the Old Testament. We said that forgiveness was the engine that drives mercy. You can't have one without the other. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So when you are praying to release a person who has sinned against you, at the same time, you are praying that God will forgive them. That he will have mercy on them in spite of their sins, just as you want him to have mercy on you because of your sins. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. If that person is alive and in your life, 
How are you to, how are you to treat him after you have released him in forgiveness to God? What you have just done in this action prepares you to begin the Matthew 18 process that we just discussed. I believe one of the reasons that this process fails is because we jump into it without having truly released the offender before the Lord in prayer. We haven't prayed for God to forgive and have mercy. So after the prayer of releasing, if at all possible, you'll go alone to the person who has offended you and confront him with what he's done. If he rejects you, take another person with you and so on. But what if the Matthew 18 process doesn't work? Well, let's go beyond treating that person as a tax collector and a sinner. Why not treat him as an enemy? How are we to treat enemies? The New Testament is clear. Romans 12, 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If at all possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Notice that the Apostle Paul says, don't avenge yourself, but give anger its place. Feeling anger is legitimate, but don't let it control your actions. What is the proof that you have forgiven and released a person to the Lord? Are you willing and anxious to do whatever good you can to the individual who has wronged you so that he or she can grow in Jesus? I underscore the words, what good you can. Let's be clear. This doesn't mean that you let such a person continue to abuse you. If they repent and ask to be forgiven, if they have stolen from you, it doesn't mean that you must put them back into a position where they will be tempted to steal again. If there is a way to show mercy and unconditional love to that individual by helping him when he is in need, do it, but be wise about it. Now, I have to say this. Jesus warned in Matthew 13, 25 to 30, in the parable of the wheat and tares, that among his people here on earth, and he meant in the church itself, there would be those who might appear to be his followers, but were instead planted by Satan for the purpose of destruction. We're not to search around to weed them out, but very often they will show themselves. Psychiatrist M. Scott Peck, in his important little book, The People of the Lie, wrote about such individuals. They seem to be so nice and sweet, but they do and say utterly destructive things and experience no guilt about it whatsoever. Now, this is an important concept to understand in the church. There are even pastors and leaders who have been planted by the powers of darkness. I truly believe that. They may look and smell like Christ followers, but they are not members of Jesus' kingdom. This should not surprise us. Little wonder that the Matthew 18 process doesn't really work with them. They will try to turn it against you. In this world, there are destructive, evil people who are truly dangerous. I do not believe that we are to confront them. If going to confront someone may cause you danger, do not do it. 
Now, the Holy Spirit must guide in all these situations. And I want to say this, if we are not walking with the Lord, if we have not absolutely surrendered our lives to His will and everything, if we are not growing in Him, I do not believe that we will have the wisdom and strength to deal with destructive people. If you are struggling in your faith, if you are weak for any cause, if you are just starting in your serious walk with Jesus, before you confront anyone, seek the counsel of mature believers. Let's bring all this together. The release of the individual and the situation to God in prayer that Jesus taught in Mark 11, we might call vertical forgiveness. It's a transaction between you and God alone, and it frees you to live a life of faith and a life of obedience. Also, it empowers you to carry out the other side of forgiveness that Jesus taught. This we might call horizontal forgiveness. It is between you and a person who has wronged you. For this kind of forgiveness to be given, there must be repentance by the individual. Horizontal forgiveness could involve the Matthew 18 process. Vertical forgiveness prepares your heart for horizontal forgiveness. The purpose of vertical forgiveness is so that God will forgive you. It keeps your relationship open with Him. The purpose for horizontal forgiveness is to reestablish a broken relationship on new and healthy grounds. It means in the right spirit holding someone accountable for wrongs that have been done against you for the good of the offender, for the good of the body of Christ, and even for the good of society as a whole. But we need to talk for just a moment about this concept of holding someone accountable. In my observation, very often it is an excuse for fake forgiveness. Sure, I forgive them, but I have to hold them accountable, you know. The only way to hold someone accountable in the way Jesus intends is to pray regularly for God to have mercy on that person, to confront them in a biblical manner, to do good for them wherever possible, and not to complain and talk about the situation with others. If your definition of holding someone accountable includes sharing the whole nasty mess with all the people you can, then, my friend, you need forgiveness yourself. As Jesus said, take the beam out of your own eye before you try to remove the speck from someone else's eye. What God intends is that in everything we do, His love is to be in action in our lives. 1 Peter 4.8 says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now this covering doesn't mean pretending that there is no sin. It means having mercy and not stripping someone naked in front of others by your spiritualized desire for vengeance. The local body of believers that we call a church was created to be the expression of God's forgiveness in this world. Forgiveness and healing is to start within the body of Christ, or all our God talk really means nothing. We are obedient in both vertical and horizontal forgiveness. When we allow God to do His work in our broken relationships, Miracles can happen. Broken hearts can be healed. Broken relationships can be reestablished on new ground. But what does a reestablished relationship look like? Does it mean that we forgive and forget, as so many people claim? If a man repents a hundred times and a hundred times goes back to beating his wife, does he just forget every time? Does the Bible teach you just keep on taking it because he repents? Absolutely not. A reestablished relationship does not necessarily mean the same relationship. 
It does not demand that the offended person establish a relationship where one did not exist before. It does not demand that the relationship be restored where it was before the offense took place. It does demand that once repentance has been demonstrated, the offender must be released from alienation and allowed to reestablish a relationship with you on a reasonable level. Exactly what that level is calls for wisdom. And once again, if that person has demonstrated that they are under the control of evil or because of mental disease they are dangerous, no relationship can be allowed. God calls us to live in peace. The repentance of the individual does not demand that you drop charges if illegal activity has taken place. That person may need to answer to the state for a crime. Part of their true repentance could be understanding the need to be held accountable to society. You know, now many people have trouble with this. They think that what I'm talking about isn't true forgiveness. They believe the Bible teaches that we should forgive and forget. This is such a pervasive mistake that we need to examine it for a moment. In part, the argument comes from a misunderstanding of passages such as Jeremiah 31:34. Let me read it to you. It's a short passage. God says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Then there's Psalm 103, 11 to 12. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Doesn't that imply forgetting? So the idea is that if God doesn't remember our sin, shouldn't forgiveness mean that we must forget, forget those sins of those who do terrible things to us? As I said in a previous study, have you ever actually consciously tried to forget something? I can tell you it's impossible. That's the quickest way to remember it. Uh, God is all-powerful. He knows everything. Does he have some kind of special ability to forget that he hasn't given to us? How could he know everything if there is a world of sin that he doesn't remember? You can drive yourself crazy with these kinds of questions. The Bible sometimes uses the same words to mean different things. Determining what a word means demands that we understand the context where it's used. That's a funny story. For instance, the story of Mary and Joseph. First they were engaged and then they were married. After that they took Jesus, it took a long trip to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. But in Matthew 1.25 it says that Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus' birth. Could that mean that he'd never been introduced to her until that time? Probably not. You know, context is everything. Obviously, in the Bible, the words to know have several different meanings. So what does the passage mean when it says that God will remember their sins no more? We can look at other passages of Scripture that use the word remember and see different meanings. For instance, in Luke 23, 42, the thief who was crucified with Jesus says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, did he just mean, when I am roasting in hell, think about me once in a while? What good would that do? When he used that word, remember, he meant, when you are in your kingdom, think of me to save me, to help me. In the Bible, to remember doesn't just mean to bring something to mind that's buried somewhere in your brain. It can be, mean remembering by actions of blessing or vengeance. And conversely, not to remember can mean not to remember with actions of blessing or vengeance. Here's an example. Because Jesus was our substitute, 
God will not remember our sins for the purpose of condemning us. God knows everything, past, present, and future. What has He forgotten? Nothing. So we can conclude that His forgiveness of our sins has nothing to do with His forgetting that we have sinned or forgetting any of the facts concerning our sins. But He will not remember our sins in order to hold them against us. Thank God. Think of Peter's terrible sin in denying Jesus. Has God forgotten that sin in the sense that He just can't quite bring it to mind? He can't forget something that's in His Word. There's another sense in which forgetting is used in the Bible. It can be used in the sense of unconsciously neglecting to do a task. In Mark 8.14, it says the disciples had forgotten to bring bread with them. This led to the miraculous feeding of thousands of people. Unconsciously neglecting to do something is what we often think of as forgetting. But sometimes the word forget is used to describe conscious neglect of doing something, such as God blessing me. David says in Psalm 13.1, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Did he mean God is busy and hasn't thought about him recently? I don't think so. He's saying, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Why haven't you blessed me yet? So forgetting in the Bible can mean the intentional withholding of blessing. Nowhere in the Bible is there a single example of God forgetting sin in the sense of not having it in his mind. It's impossible to volitionally forget anything, and God doesn't ask us to do the impossible. <clears throat> when someone sins against you, the memory of that sin will continue, and you may feel the pain of it for a very long period of time, even after you have forgiven that individual. To remember and feel the pain and hurt does not mean that you haven't forgiven the person. That pain is a burden that you will carry but Jesus will carry it with you. Because ultimately, whatever was done against you was done against Him. Instead of trying to desperately forget, you accept that you will live with a memory, and when you feel the pain, you remind yourself that you have forgiven the individual and placed the whole thing in Jesus' hands. That is the iron discipline of forgiveness. I believe this. As you exercise that discipline, praying for God's love and mercy to transform a person's heart, eventually, God will transform your heart, giving you His love for that individual. But do you want it? Do you want to love the person who has hurt you? Is God's forgiveness really at work in and through you? Here's a test. Do you say that you have forgiven, but you keep a list of past sins? and use a new sin to remind the individual or just yourself of all the sinful things that this person has done to you? You pull out your little list. Well, you always do this to me, but of course I've forgiven you, magnanimous person that I am. I'm afraid I'm famous for such statements. You know, last Monday, Carol and I celebrated our 46th wedding anniversary. The week before, for the first time in years, we had our whole family together including all four grandchildren. What a glorious, chaotic time. It was wonderful. These little creatures, uh, we've got one that's one and a half and one that's four, and they just constantly move. They don't ever stop until they drop. It was wonderful, you know, but as I looked at all of us, all of us, it struck me that every one of us except the littlest grandchildren has caused the others pain and hurt at one time or another. And the older the individual, the more pain. 
But of all places on earth, a family ought to be the showcase of heaven's forgiveness through Jesus' love. And that is what our family is. That is what marriage is meant to be. The glory of marriage is sacrificial love, and sacrificial love just overflows with mercy and forgiveness. While the memory of a hurt may return, sacrificial love keeps no lists. And after a while, the very memory becomes so laced with heaven's love that it is beautiful. I know that many of us haven't been blessed to have husbands or wives or children. Some of us face deep hurt that lingers on from families that didn't work and marriages that failed. Whatever situation you face, be faithful in the work of forgiveness that God has given to you. And if you need to ask someone for forgiveness, if you need to do that, don't neglect to do it. Life is so short. I had another uncle and aunt. This uncle was one of my mother's brothers. My uncle Lawrence was a dynamic individual, an inventor and a very successful businessman. His wife, my Aunt Clarissa, was just the model of what you imagine a warm, loving aunt to be. They were always so kind to my family. Of all my uncles and aunts, in many ways, I think these two are some of my very favorites. They had us on a lake and a ski boat. Uh, that really added a lot to our relationship. <laughs> my Uncle Lawrence was killer good-looking. If you have any knowledge of the 1940s and 50s actor Errol Flynn, well, that's pretty much what he looked like. As a child, I didn't know it, but he was unfaithful to my Aunt Clarissa many times over many years. Finally, she just had enough, and she divorced him. As a boy, I remember the shock and sorrow that I felt over their divorce. I just couldn't imagine it. They were such loving people. I don't know if that was what started a spiritual awakening in my uncle's life. But my uncle came back to the Lord in the most serious way. And he repented of his sins. A number of years later, he married a good Christian woman who had not been involved with him in his past. He was faithful to her, though in later years she came down with Alzheimer's and he took care of her like a child until she died. All of that being true, I know that in his heart he never stopped loving my Aunt Clarissa. And she never stopped loving him. They had two children together. Toward the end of her life, my aunt shared with my mother that she deeply regretted divorcing my uncle. She wished that she hadn't done it. Did she do the right thing in that divorce? I think she did. I think she did. Maybe God used it to bring her ex-husband back to him. My Uncle Lawrence died at age 99. Before he died, for many, many years, he had been a man of deep prayer. Was there forgiveness in all of that hurt and sorrow? Yes, there was the deep forgiveness of Jesus all around. That didn't mean that all of the hurt was healed in this world. The pain and sorrow caused by forgiven sin continued on as long as they lived. You know, the poet Robert Browning wrote famous words, and I love these words, Ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp. Or what's a heaven for? That should be true when we talk about forgiveness. Our reach should exceed our grasp. In Jesus' love, we reach for forgiveness with all our strength. 
though so often complete healing is beyond our grasp. I'm sure you've heard the old illustration about the father who wanted to teach his little boy about sin. He gave him a hammer and some nails and a new piece of wood. Then he told him to pound in the nails, saying the nails are like sin. Then he told him to pull out the nails. That's like God's forgiveness. Finally, he said, now take out the holes. Removing the holes is what heaven is all about. My Aunt Clarissa and Uncle Lawrence are in heaven. I know in that wonderful kingdom built on the forgiveness of God and Jesus, they have found complete healing. Tears have been washed away. The holes are gone. But that healing of forgiveness started here in this world. Has the healing power of God's forgiveness started working in you? Is it working out of you, through you, to other people? I hope so. The Holy Spirit will show you just exactly where in your heart there is forgiveness work still to be done. Don't be afraid of that work. It's the heart of God's mercy. Blessed, happy, blessed beyond imagining are the merciful, those who are showing forgiveness all around, for they shall receive the mercy of God forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that mercy has become available to us because of Jesus, our Savior and our King, who is our substitute, who died the death that we should have died, who paid the penalty for all of our sin. And forgiveness is possible. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room tonight who who has not asked to be forgiven by you, who has not confessed his or her sins before you, and asked that they be washed away by the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross, I just pray that that person would come to you and ask for forgiveness, and that that act of forgiveness would flow outward and truly for all of us, Lord, in all of our lives. Lord, we pray that your forgiveness would flow out, that you would truly let that light shine through us and to all the people in our lives, those who need to be forgiven, those we need to go to and ask for forgiveness. We ask for that knowing that we're going to a place, a wonderful city, a kingdom, that is built, every rock that is in it, every golden street is built on forgiveness and mercy. Praise you for that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I hope you found this talk helpful. If you'd like to look into this subject more deeply, go to my blog at colemanluck.net. Scroll down to the post entitled The Difference Between Life and Death, Forgiveness. These are chapters on forgiveness from my book, Day of the Wolf, Unmasking and Confronting Wolves in the Church. They grew out of the talk you just heard. Thanks for listening. God's blessing on you as you live out His forgiveness.